Welcome to Genesis Community Church. My name is Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here, uh, and it's really good to have you with us this morning. And I want to start with a confession. I am a bad golfer, real bad. Like, if you've never played and you play right now, you're better than me. Like, just if you just start, you're better than me. I think one time I quit playing in middle school because I would have hit like a 150, which if you don't know golf, that's a lot. Uh, basically double what, more than double what anyone would have done. And uh, I played one time, played. Let me, just, let, me, let me back that up. I rode in a cart one time since arriving back in, in Texas. So uh, me and John Weichbrot, one of our elders, and Matt, who you saw up here singing with his mom, uh, and Rich Halloran, uh, who's going to be preaching actually, I think, in three weeks, uh, they played, and I rode in the cart and would just carry on conversation from time to time. Um, so that's about the bulk of my golfing experience because I'm really bad at it. Now, there are many things I'm bad at. If you want a list, we can talk after the service of the things that I'm bad at. Um, then you can talk to Courtney. She'll give you a longer list of things that I'm bad at. Uh, but we're all pretty bad at certain things for one reason or another. Um, some can't dance. You know, Phil Collins can't. He wrote a song about it. So that's honest. Um, but more seriously, like some people are really bad at, at confrontation or conflict. They, they clam up. They don't, they don't know how to have a conversation. They find them, themselves frustrated with a, another brother or sister in the church family or a spouse or a friend or family member. And they, don't, they just stay bothered because they don't know how to say in a, in a good manner, this is bugging me. Um, you know, some of my kids just result to shoving and yelling at each other when they're mad. Uh, so some of us go, I just, I'm really bad at talking to people about how I feel, especially if how I feel is, is, might look negative. It might look like I'm bothering somebody. I don't want to do that. Um, even, you know, a little more jovially, but all of us have kind of a ceiling on the technology we, will, we are willing to learn. We just go, I've got my stuff, I'm good. I don't need another app, I don't need another thing, I don't need another, you don't need to do any of that stuff with me. Like, I'm fine. I just log on to my dial-up, and I just, my computer makes noises, and that's all I need. That's all I need. I'm fine. Um, I have a family member who still doesn't have an email address, which shocks me, because I don't know how you even, I think that's like a prerequisite for a social security number. Uh, so I don't know how that happens, but, but we all have, right, things where we just go, I'm just not good at that. Both seriously and jovially, we go, I'm not good at that. Uh, and, and, and I'm sure that, that my list is longer than yours, but there's probably some areas where we can kind of get together. The uh, reason we're bad at these, that you might be bad or I might be bad, has sometimes something to do with our aptitude, but a lot of the times it just has to do with our approach or our willingness to learn something. How do we go towards something? How do we figure it out? How do, how do we understand the relationship so that I can know to have a hard conversation? Right? If you're learning a new sport or learning for the first time, you spend so much time, like you're like, all I want to do is hit a home run. Like, that's my goal. I see people hit home runs, I want to do that. And you spend the first, like, four years of your life with somebody telling you how to stand. You're like, I don't want to, I just want to hit a home run. 
I don't want you to tell me how to stand or how to shift my feet or, you know, don't tell me this stuff about I got to use a T first. I don't want to use a T, right? Like, I think that's why I gave up on golf is because I just didn't want people to tell me. Gave up. That's funny. Like, I really started. I didn't want people to tell me how to approach something, right? So you learn a new sport. You do this. In fact, I was just reading an article this morning uh, about Steph Curry, who basically can shoot a three-pointer from here to Laredo, like, swish. Didn't even have to look. Uh, and how he's so frustrating to defend because he doesn't just practice shooting long shots, but the thing he really practices is how to run around a whole lot. Like, he's actually maybe the best off-ball mover that you've ever seen. Like, if you're watching a Golden State Warriors game, you're going to find, you're going to be like, who's that person running around? Like, it's Steph. Because he's always moving around, and so he'll run two and a half miles in a basketball game. I think the article said that over the course of his career, he will have run 70 marathons worth of basketball um, because he puts in the energy to learn how to do this thing so that he can be elite in what he does, right? He just has a totally different mindset or approach in how to handle it. His approach is totally different. So he spends all his time, he doesn't spend a lot of time in the offseason training on how to shoot, he trains on how to run. That's where he's going to spend his energy how to outlast the people that you're playing so at the end of a game you can still shoot really well after you've run two and a half miles. Giving feedback, you know, learning a sport. Giving feedback is hard. I mean, we really do sometimes have to learn steps on how to talk to somebody. Um, or we have to train others in how to talk to us. Right? Like, like, hey, what are we going to talk about? Like, I do really bad if somebody just goes, hey, can we meet? You're going to usually find my follow-up be about what? About what? Um, because... If you want to meet about, you know, Star Wars, like, I'm out. You know, so I just go, about what? What are we, what are we talking about here? Um, or, uh, I, so I have to train people how to talk to me. You might have to train people how to talk to you. But having a conversation about a difficult thing is hard. It's how you approach the person. Uh, technology is a mindset thing. Like, how can I learn these things? i got to be willing to always be disrupted a little bit. All of those things are about approach. Now... You go, why are you talking about this so much? Bear with me. We're almost there. You exist in this world with two significant relationships. Two significant relationships. First one is your relationship with God, which is paved for you through the work of Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God the Father is significant because of what Christ has done for you. That relationship is for all who have faith, an eternal one. You're in it. And the other significant relationship is that relationship you have with me or others, right? Uh, I'm not just speaking about just your spouse or your kids, but your relationship with God and your relationship with others are the two significant relationships that you have. And we need to learn how to approach both of those Relationships. How do I approach God? <clears throat> how do I approach others? How do I, how do I live my life out in Christ toward the Lord and, and toward others? What, what would God have for me? <clears throat> because I still think sometimes like we'll treat God di- at a distance. We'll go, well, he's over there, and maybe he's too busy for me. Like, he has that whole keep the world together, right? He's got the whole world. Like, we're like, he's just super busy. And so for me to, 
want to talk to him, want to engage him, well, that doesn't make a, a, a ton of sense. And, and then on the other side, there's our relationship with one another, with the church. And how do we relate to one another? What would God have for us there? Well, Jesus teaches us these things in Matthew. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new here, if this is your first Sunday, like, welcome. Glad that you're here. Uh, we're marching through the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting close to the end. Uh, so chapter 7 is the last, last chapter. After today, we're going to talk for two, three Sundays on basically one thing. That one thing is reiterated after today as two paths, two prophets, and two foundations. That there's kind of two ways to go, ways to walk in this world. There's two kinds of people who speak about God, and then there's two foundations that we build upon. And so that's going to come the next three weeks, and then we finish it up uh, right before Easter. So here, as we get into chapter 7, we finished up about judging one another last week. Now we look at 1 through 12. Now I know you're going to go, well, hold on, this could be at least two sermons. I know it can, because we have a statement on ask, seek, and knock, which just conveniently also spells ask, which is kind of funny. So ask, seek, and knock, A-S-K, ask, seek, knock. And then we have the golden rule. Why are these combined when they could certainly be separated? Uh, one is because I think the golden rule we often just fit in, we just kind of think it exists out there in the ether, like it's just this statement that we use. But it comes in the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to hold these two together and go, okay, well, he's preaching on asking God, and he kind of summarizes both what he's just said and what he's been saying with how do we treat each other. I want to hold these two pieces together. So we're going to start with our passage, Matthew 7, starting in verse 7, all the way through 12. If you're unfamiliar with how Bible pages work, you find the book, it's usually at the top. The big numbers on the page are the chapters, and the little numbers are the verses. So when we say Matthew 7, 12, or 7, 7, big 7, little 7 is what we're looking for, and it goes like this. You hear Jesus say, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, thanks Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and Pray with me. Father, use this passage to change our hearts more into the likeness of your son Jesus, who died for us, gave himself up for us, and in whom we have life. And we pray in his name. Amen. Approach to God, approach to others. You see both of those right there. How do we go to God? How do we go toward others? How do we move towards others? What way do we approach these relationships? So the bulk of the passage first, 7, Matthew 7, verses 7. 11. We'll just look at 7 and 8 first. He says, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. These are all relational, aren't they? Right? Ask, ask somebody you see. Seek them out and you will be able to find it. Knock to get access. The door will be opened. That, that you, there's this idea of relationship and persistence in how Jesus is teaching us. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, these statements are, are familiar to many of us. We kind of go, oh, yeah, ask, seek, knock. But are they? Are they familiar? The question I want to ask you is, 
Do you actually believe this? Do you believe this? Because what we will do as Christians is we will fill it with caveats. Right? Like we'll fill it with like 800 different reasons why Jesus didn't really say ask and you will receive and seek and you will find and knock and the door will be open. And so we've, we've, we've found a way to kind of respectfully distance ourselves from our relationship with our Heavenly Father, which should be childlike, which should be wholly and completely dependent. And we've kind of intellectualized into, well, ask the right things, and we'll look at that verse, but like, ask the right things. Okay, well, what are the right things? How do I know if I'm asking the right thing? How, how do I know it's precise enough? How do I know that, it, that, it, that I use the words right? And what you'll see through this passage is that it's not about you. The emphasis on asking and receiving and seeking and finding and knocking the door being opened is not about your character. It's not about the words you use, as if you could conjure up God, right? Because like many other false religions would say, well, if you use the right words or you do the right thing, then the deity will respond to you. Jesus isn't teaching us that. In fact, the response to us is based upon God toward us, not us toward God. It's an important difference to see as we go through this. So he starts with these statements about asking, seeking, and knocking, and then he goes to why, the character of God. And he uses this argument that we've seen before, lesser to greater, where he uses a, a, a small illustration to then prove a bigger point. He says, well, which of you, if his son asks him for bread, is going to give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, is going to give him a snake, a serpent? And he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So he appeals to parents. Smart move. Because parents love their kids. And what he says is, earthly fathers give the things that their kids are asking for. Kids ask for bread. You don't go, well, here's a, here's a rock. Asks for fish. Doesn't say, here's a snake. Unless you're just honestly ruthless and terrible. But dads don't really generally do that, do they? Like, like even, be it... Be it if you know the Lord or you don't know the Lord, right? You could say if you're saved or unsaved, a dad is, is going to give to the child the thing the child's asking for. Not going to try and dupe him or her into something. And so he says, so, so which one of you, if, if your kid asks for something, is going to give them something that would harm them? Who would do that? And then he makes that greater move, right? That if, you're, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts, well, then how much more will God, your Father, who is good, give good gifts to you? And I like what Jesus is saying here because it helps us understand. Uh, we've used it, it's not in the passage, but we, you'll hear us talk about this concept of depravity. And I've said it like this before, that depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you could be. It means you're as bad off as you could be. The difference meaning, like, you, could all, you have capacity to do more harmful things than you're currently doing. You, you could hurt more relationships, and you, you, you could do worse, right? Like you, could, you could do worse. You couldn't be worse. Right? And I think that's an important difference when we think about depravity as a state, which is when Jesus says, you, are you being evil, meaning that we are opposed to God, that we stand separated from God as, as a people because of the sin that is inherent within us, he goes, if you who are evil can still do this, then how could your Father in heaven, look at your Father in heaven who's always been good, give good? And I, and I like what Jesus says here 
because a lot of how Jesus is speaking is kind of like wisdom literature. If you've ever read the Proverbs or you've read uh, Psalms, Job is wisdom, wisdom literature, but if you've read wisdom literature in the Old Testament, um, one thing that we can do, maybe erroneously, a mistake we can make when we read it is that we, we read a principle for a promise. Uh, and, and what that means is like we hear Jesus say the way things ought to operate, and then we look for the one opportunity to go, no, I know this time a kid asked for something and his dad gave him a, a joke gift. Or, or like, we look for the opportunity to prove Jesus wrong. But Jesus isn't speaking like in every single instance that a child asks his father for something, that father's always going to give the right thing back. He's not speaking about it like that. He's speaking in a way that appeals to what's inherent within us, which is like even as fallen people, like we want to be good dads. We, we want to be good friends. Like, like, so he's going, if, if you know this, if you know better, like, think about how much better God is at this than you are. Like, he's so much better than you at this. And so what we have in that is to recognize, and I, and I remember having a conversation with uh, a professor many years ago. I said, so, so help me understand how can, can an unbeliever do good things? And his comment was, absolutely. An unbeliever could do things in the realm of being separated from God, right? So, so the status doesn't change regardless of the activity that you're doing, right? And remember, the way that the gospel works is that God doesn't look at our works, he looks at our heart. And so the heart can be in one condition while the actions might actually be doing things that are beneficial. Okay, so, so that's what Jesus is getting at. So he has these two thoughts. You're evil, but you give good gifts, and God is good, and he will give you good things. That lesser to greater argument. And what we see here is God, a heavenly father, who is interested. Hear that word, interested. If you're a Bible circler, you could circle the how much more, right? How, you know, how much more will your father, if you, if you are a big fan of circling, circle it up. Because we have a heavenly father who is interested in meeting our needs. He's interested in hearing our requests. He's interested in providing for us. Relationally, Jesus is saying, ask, seek, knock. What, and what are those? Those are activities, right? They're like, like, be active in your asking, in your seeking, in your knocking. Pursue God, right? It's how you approach him. Pursue God. He's interested. Now, I, I can caveat it with Jesus' half-brother, James. Remember, James, his half-brother, came to faith later in life. But didn't come to faith right away. He wasn't one of the apostles, but he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he writes this letter. We read it last year. Um, and he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That's James 4.3. So there is this idea that we ask some things and, and we don't receive. Might be selfish. Might be, might be misunderstanding why we're asking or what's going on. So we get that there's this idea that according to his way of life, according to his will, but but I think that, I want to say this, that paralyzes us, right? I think it makes us afraid to ask, ask certain things because well, what if it's not right? What if it's not right? But which one of you parents, right? Let's do the same kind of thinking. Which one of you parents would want your children to keep things from you that they're thinking about because they're afraid it's the wrong thing to ask you? Right? So how many more times have you said, why didn't you tell me? 
instead of, why did you tell me that? Right? Like, you want, even if, it's, even, if, even if it's from the wrong place, you want that to get worked out in the relationship where it can be addressed. That's why when it comes to, like, we've been reading in Leviticus uh, as a church, right? And there's a lot about sexual ethics in Leviticus. Guess what conversations I've been having with my kids awkwardly, right? Like, and they're like, is it my turn to have that talk? I'm like, come on, right? Just line them up and circle through. And then we got to Courtney. I was like, your turn, Courtney. Um, so having these conversations, right? Because I'm like, I try to tell them, you're going to have people in your life who are going to try and talk to you about this. Talk to me first, because your friends are wrong. They don't understand. Talk to me first. Please don't feel as if you, can, you have to keep certain things from me because you're afraid of what I might say or what I might do. Don't do that, because I'm your father and I care. So relationally, we have to think about how God wants us to go to him. And what I would say is this, that I want you to, I want you to go to him with everything. With everything. That you ask your good father for good things. Right? That you ask your good father for good things. You know the relationship. You know who he is. You know where to go. And you go to God. So Jesus is going, ask and you will, right? Receive, seek, and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. And then he goes to relationship. Because this is your heavenly father and he wants to give you good things. It's about our approach. Well, do I feel like I could ask God this? Do I feel like I could go to him? Well, in his son, you have freedom and access. You do. You can ask. You can go. You can, you can pursue. And it should be a regular part of how we operate as disciples because we recognize the relationship that we're in. I need to talk to my dad about this. I need to ask him anything. I need to do this. And we need to bring needs that only he can meet. And again, recognizing that we have a heavenly father, I want to go to Matthew 18 for a second. Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Right, because everyone wants to know. Like, who, who really? Like, am I number one, number two, number three? Like, where, where do I fit? Because there's some losers in, amongst the apostles, so, right? And look at what Jesus does. And I don't think we realize that maybe this... This in our flesh would be an insult. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And I would go, I mean, again, at face value, what an offense. I spend my entire childhood trying to not be a child. I want a job, and I want to be able to eat whatever I want and not have my parents tell me not to eat that. I want to be able to do what I want and vacation where I want, and all the things that I hated about what, I did, you know, what my parents made me do, I want to then be the parent that can do, all, do the reverse of all of those things. That's what I want. You tell me I spend my entire childhood dreaming about the person that I could be as an adult, and then you come around, Jesus, and you tell me, go back. Be like that one. That's what you need to be. Because I, I pride myself in being sufficient. 
in meeting the right needs and doing what I must. I pride myself in, 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 in making sure the bills can be paid and in having the answer. And to go back and to be told that I have to become dependent, that that's the relationship? That's why he has to use the word humble yourself. Because kids ask for everything. They need everything. And yet Jesus is saying, be like that. Be like that. Your, your childlike posture is a part of asking, a part of that relationship. Kids ask a million questions. Are we there yet? Right? That's the one. I'll turn this car around right now. All right? At our house, it's always about food. Can I have food? I'm hungry. What, what are we going to eat? I'm like, you literally ate five minutes ago. Like, it's still on your plate, the leftovers, and you're asking, what can we eat? Um, and and I, so I think sometimes we have this, like, pie in the sky, like, oh, it's just childlike and it's beautiful. But, like, childlike dependency, when you look at, like, maybe my prayer life, that can be kind of embarrassing. Like, I'm sure I'm praying for things where you look at that, you're like, you're praying for that? Like, you're asking God for that? I'm like, well... <laughs> Who else is going to meet it? I'm not. And so you have to think about that relationship. This childlike posture is a good thing for us. Because it constantly says, I can't meet these needs. I can't do this thing. God, I need this. I need that. I mean, I really do want to encourage you to have an incredibly needy prayer life. Like, neediness isn't seen as a good thing. I get it. Like, oh, they're so needy. Like, your prayer life should be everything you wish people weren't, right? Like, it needs to be needy. It needs to be full of requests. It needs to be asking. It needs to be seeking. It needs to be trying to understand what God's doing. Like, anything, seriously, anything. Like, like it needs to be that. And, of course, our desire should be on things that please him. Of course, as we read the scriptures and as we mature in that sense spiritually, because spiritual maturity is a thing. We don't live in spiritual immaturity. So you can be dependent as a child and still maturing. Those two things can, can exist together. But as you mature, you, in a sense, become more dependent. You, you realize you need more, that you don't need less of God. You need more of God to get you through the day. So our desire should be on things that please him, but remember that our requests are not always going to hit the mark of a perfect request. And I'm going to say that's a good thing, because remember, our asking is not based upon us, but upon God. He's the caretaker. He's the father. Like, remember the, the sun stands still prayer, Old Testament, sun stands still well, anybody who knows how the sun works knows that it doesn't rotate around the, you know, like the earth, right? The earth rotates around the sun, right? Like, that, that was a scientifically incorrect prayer. Sun doesn't stand still in that sense, right? It doesn't stand still. You, you got it wrong. Can't believe God answered that. Well, our asking is not based upon our knowledge of meteorology and and astronomy and how this works and what goes on here and, and did I get this thing right? Did, did, did my theology check all the right boxes to be sure that I asked the perfect prayer? If you do that, then your 
prayers are based way too much on you saying the right thing versus you recognizing who God is. That's the difference. That if you're too worried about saying the right thing, then your prayer life is about you versus going to God and approaching him with anything. So uh, a few of us are in this little book club and reading this book of Praying Life. We've talked about it before, I think, uh, by Paul Miller. And it's a really challenging book for us to read because he's essentially uh, challenging all these presuppositions we have about prayer. And, and like, we're all, we just get together in our little Zoom, Zoom call, and we're like, that was really good. Like, that makes me feel like I don't pray enough. Um, so I think the book is accomplishing its purpose in all our hearts. Uh, but this is what he says, and this is how he pushes back on that idea of asking. He uses the illustration of vacation homes. He goes, you ever prayed to have a vacation home? Essentially, and now I'm going to, those of you who read it know I'm not using the exact same words. And of course, it's like, well, why would you pray for a vacation home? He goes, well, his point is, if you don't bring that into the relationship that you have with God, then what are you going to do? You're just going to do your research, see if you can afford it, and buy it. Like, so, so you actually are going to just remove God from the consideration and do the thing you want to do rather than actually bring the request before God because you don't think it levels up to something that he should hear about. But if you really are concerned about those prayers of your kingdom come, your will be done that Jesus has instructed us in, then even something like that, even the purchase of a vehicle, even the place that we might want to move, even the decision that we want to make about our careers, that that gets brought under the good care of God. That's where it gets brought. And, and when you do that, what are you doing in prayer? But you're actually, in essentially surrendering your desire to him. You're saying, I would like this, but yeah, I don't know if it's what you want. <laughs> Instead of just making your plans and living your life. And that's why I say your prayer life should be full of needs. It should be full of requests. When I look at that, I'm like, you're really praying about that? You're praying about that? It should be like, of course I am. Like your whole prayer journal or prayer whatever, however you want to pray and keep up with that stuff, it should be filled with things that only God can do. Just pages littered with things that only God can do. And I do mean things like only God can do, like save. Only God can save. So, of course, you should be praying for people in your life who don't know the Lord that they come to know him. And it should be filled with things like, God, could you somehow convince my boss to give me a raise? Could you? <laughs> That's right. Oh. I don't know if the feed heard the hallelujah, but that's what we just had. Right? That you're working those things out with God. And if we really are childlike, then don't we allow our Father to correct us? Don't we allow him? I mean, if we're really approaching him with that posture, isn't he going to correct us and, and direct us and go, you think you need that, but actually you don't. You think that's the most important thing, but actually, I'm working out something else there. And I was looking at my prayers even this morning, because uh, I'll do this thing where I'll write the date I start praying for that thing just so that I can see if I'm being like the persistent widow, because very often it's like, well, I'll pray for like a week, and then I'll just, you know, peter out. So I put the dates on there so I can remember what, what to do and, um, or what I've been praying for. And 
some of those things, like, we're getting into, like, that was a year ago. You know, nothing's happened yet. But that doesn't mean it, it, it moves from the realm of prayer because a long time has passed. I mean, a long time, really, for some of these prayers that we have should be decades. That if we can't have our eye on what God is doing and longing for him to, to bring real change and meet real needs, like, it should really be decades. And, and, and so we need to be okay with that. So that's why I write, I don't write dates so I can be like, oh, I'm awesome. I just write dates so I can go, how long have I been asking that? Like, am I even being persistent? Is this actually something that matters to me enough to regularly bring before God? But here's what I would say, because you're in Christ, because you're in Christ, you belong to God your Father. You don't don't have to fear. You don't have to fear that when you pray, God's going to just, condemn you because Jesus took your condemnation. Of course you're going to be selfish. Of course you're going to say things that you shouldn't. Of course in the moment of frustration you're going to ask God for something or to do something that he's not going to do. And you know what? Because it's based upon God's character and not your request, he's not going to answer your selfish, anger-filled prayer request. Good. Because even our prayer life demonstrates if we really think God is sovereign and knows best. And we can bring these things before. We said this before, not every prayer, but honestly, if you go through almost, I think it it could be every prayer in the New Testament that you could find. It isn't every prayer in the Old Testament. I think I found one. There are probably others, but I found one where this doesn't apply. But if you look at the prayers in the New Testament, they are exclusively requests. Find them. Now, you might be able to prove me wrong, but like generally, if I've read, like, if you look in the epistles, like, and this is what I pray for you, like, they're all requests. They're all things that are being specifically prayed for. If you look in the book of Acts, the things that the church is praying for, like, they're praying for God to do things. It's filled with requests. Filled with requests. And so we need that muscle of requesting and asking and aligning our hearts and getting off of ourselves and focusing on the Lord. We need that and how we operate as prayers. We ask our good Father for good things. We approach him with joy and confidence that he provides. And we trust him to correct us when we aren't aligned. Because he's the one who gets our attention. He's the one that we should trust. And it makes sense that Jesus would use the illustration between children and parents to to show us. Because when we think about it like that, we go, of course. You can talk to me about anything. You can ask me anything. I don't expect you to have full knowledge, full awareness. You're not going to be that person. So bring it to the relationship where it can be worked out with your Heavenly Father, who's good and who cares. Approach God gladly and joyfully and confidently and even trusting that when you're wrong, he'll correct you. And then as we turn to this summative statement, which, which, again, sometimes as you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, you go, I'm not really sure how this fits. Um, the golden rule is one of those things that you go, well, it's like playing, playing Tetris, and you know how you get the thing wrong, and now there's like this big spot in the middle. Like that's sometimes how some of these pieces go. Like if you're reading an epistle, you're like, oh, boom, 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 right? Like Paul uses therefore, and you just kind of make all the pieces fit. But when you're reading something like this, sometimes you go, I'm not, you know, 
trying to make this fit kind of puts this spot right there. And the golden rule is one of those. I get that. Um, so some people will just kind of take it out and look at it you know, in isolation. We want to kind of keep it in the passage. So remember these things about how we're supposed to live to this point. It's just kind of very quickly, verses, chapters 5, 6, and 7. In the Beatitudes, we learn about a way of being that waits for the kingdom to come. It kind of flips on its head what matters and what's important. It's poor in spirit, meek, merciful, peacemakers. Those are the people who actually inherit what is to come. Not the loud and boisterous and aggressive and unkind. Right? So two kingdoms, two ways. That's what you'll hear about next week. We recognize that as we live this way, we are actually being salt and light. That this way of Jesus is, 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 is a way of showing others the goodness of God in our actions, in our character. We find that the law, which is fulfilled in Jesus, isn't actually about the external adornment of doing something, but of being someone. It's not not doing something, it's being someone. That's what he teaches us. And he is that someone. So we enter in through him. We're given examples of giving and prayer and fasting and how to practice them in a way that honors God, on on how to do it in a way that that is in secret so that God our Father sees us. We see that our lives aren't to be lived for treasures on earth, that we don't need to be worried about building up a kingdom here because the one that is to come is the one that matters. Moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, pipes burst and we need new sheetrock floors and walls. Jesus kind of like, I told you, this is how it works. You can try and avoid your things deteriorating, but you can't. You can just delay it. You can just delay it. But it all stops. We recognize that we shouldn't judge as if we are God, but address what's going on in us so that we can be gracious participants in the life of the church family Allow us to be changed so that we can address things in others graciously and humbly and lovingly. And then we have this statement, kind of summarizes in verse 12. Whatever you wish the others would do to you, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, in 5.17, Matthew 5.17, he said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And now, in 7.12, he's saying, doing this is the law and the prophets. It's an interesting kind of adjustment that we've had. I I came to fulfill it. In doing this, you fulfill it. But remember, the way through this life is Jesus. Call the sermon the good life. The way to live this life is through the work of the Son, not through the work that we do, not through our external adornment, not through looking good, not through saying the right thing, not through knowing how to fast, not through any of those things, but it's through the work of Jesus that actually makes this way of life possible. So he brings this kind of summative statement in here. He says, if you live like this, you're fulfilling what was intended. You've been in our reading plan last week, this past week, we just finished Leviticus, right? Some of you are celebrating that we just finished Leviticus. You're like, God, I made it. Didn't think I would make it. My poor kids, right? Because we've talked already about some of the stuff that we're learning. And um, so... We're all glad, in a sense, to be through that, 
One of the reasons is because Jesus has fulfilled that. Anybody who reads Leviticus goes, how does anybody do this? How does anybody do this? And the answer is no one did. No one did but Jesus. No one lived it out. No one did it perfectly. But now through him, we can live in this way of life that goes to the heart, which is the whole goal the entire time. Living by faith from the heart. And so he says, you treat others this way. This is not the only time that this language of if you, if you serve like this or live like this, you're fulfilling what God has for you. Matthew 22. The Pharisees heard that he had si- silenced the Sadducees and they gathered together and one of them said, what is the great commandment in the law? What is that thing we're supposed to be doing? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Second, uh, this is the great and first commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus isn't bringing new words to us. He's fulfilling old words. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Or, or there's another example. We read through it last year. Uh, the Apostle Paul, a man who gave his life to the law. Like his life, right? I mean, I mean, if he could have said he had a PhD in law, he did. Right? He knew languages, he knew law, he studied the scriptures, he could recite them, he could probably, he, could just, he just knew it. He knew, I'm just going to go ahead and go out there, he knew the Old Testament better than any person in this room. He was more familiar with it, he was more aware of its implications, he could recite it to you, you could not out-argue him, like he would win. He would win. He found Christ, or Christ found him, Road to Damascus. Faith is in Jesus. And he goes, all that stuff, a loss compared to knowing Christ. That's it. We talk about being like a child as being offensive. Think about rejecting in a sense or saying that everything that you've done and everything you've worked for didn't gain you any credit with God. That your whole trajectory gained you nothing in regard to credit with God. But that's what he said, because he found God. It didn't matter anymore. The the, the thing of enormous value had been found. And he writes it like this in Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love those kind of summary statements. Because it's a way of kind of going, oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's 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 what's going on. The problem is that our, our hearts born in sin, fundamentally broken, and needing correction. That, that we can't do this. It's one of those weird things where you can't do it without realizing you can't. Right? Like, like it, it, so it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Of course you can't do it. Like, but it tells me to do it. I'm like, yeah, but the, the first step of knowing is knowing that you don't know. Like, we have kind of those little phrases. That would be like, you see the burden that it places upon you, and you say, there's no way that I can do that. And God steps in and goes, I have a way. That way is Jesus. That through faith in him, the spirit that we get, that we are actually empowered to do what we would have never been able to do before. (laughs) And we're empowered by his grace and for his glory, and we can live this out. Left to myself, I can't approach God correctly. And because of that, I can't approach others correctly. I'm stuck. I'll just be selfish, and I'll say things like this, which was instruction I was given when I was a kid. If someone hits you, hit them back. Right? Get back at them. 
that retaliation was the way that I was taught to get back at people. And in the flesh, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Right? I'm, I'm just going to respond to you. Jesus corrects that in his Sermon on the Mount. You heard it say, eye for an eye, but I'm just going to tell you that's not how it works. We need the grace and forgiveness of God to be applied for us before we can actually treat others the way we'd want to be treated. Because we need God to show us first how he treats us so that we can then go from that to others. Right? Approaching God, approaching others. We need God to show us the way so that we then can do what he asks. I can treat you with humility because I see how God has treated me. I can be gracious to you because I've been given grace. I I can love you because I've experienced the love of God first. And it's changed what I'm able to do. I can forgive you when you've wronged me. And you can forgive me when I've wronged you. Because we have been given forgiveness by God through the work of God. So left to myself, this is why it's important to understand the work of Jesus here. Left to myself, I'm going to treat you the way that I want to be treated, but that could be wrong. Right, that's back to what we saw in 7, 1 through 6. Well, I'll show you. You judge me like that, I'll judge you like this. You measure me like that, I'll measure you like this. So I'll bring it right on back. Not so here, because we start with how God has treated us, and then we go, this is how people should be treated. Relationship with God flows to relationship with others. Really, we treat others the way we want to be treated, yes, but bigger than that is we treat others the way that Jesus has treated us. That God knows our need, and he knows how we need to be treated. He even, inst- even shows us how he has treated us. Like, like, so, so he orients our thinking and our actions and our heart, and then that empowers us to go be that for others. Be that with others. Because again, left to yourself, I might go, well, do you want to be gracious? And you'd be like, nope. Not too interested in being gracious right now. Not too interested in being kind. Not too interested in being loving. I was in the first, second, third, fourth, and fifth, but number six, I'm over it. Right? That's how we get. But when living out our identity in the Lord, we see what he's done for us, and we can be that with others. That I want us to treat one another the way Jesus treated us. Aligned with him. Connected to him. Recognizing what he has done for us. Because approach, in that sense, really is everything. How we approach God and how we approach others. Ask God for good things. We learn from him. We see him and we treat others the way he's treated us. Which really is, in the ultimate sense, the way that we want to be treated. We don't like grace till we need it. All right, if I've earned it, I'm proud. And I need grace, I'm, now I'm like, well, I can be gracious there. I, I need it too. As disciples, we come to God and ask expectantly, but we also approach one another with the grace and mercy that we have received. It changes us. Transforms us. More like him for his glory so that people could see him and know him and trust him and follow him. Because his way is better than ours. His way is better than ours.